I'm John Opperman, Executive Director of Earth Day Initiative and host of the Parts Per Million podcast. And today we have Nancy Rosenblum, a retired professor of ethics and politics and government from Harvard University. Thank you so much for joining us, Nancy. Um, can you just tell us a bit about the work that you do and the focus of your work kind of as it relates to climate? Sure, John, but uh, before I start, let me just congratulate you on this new podcast. Thank you. Um, I'm a political theorist. I write about democracy and I have, a, a number of recent books, all of which sort of converge on climate without being so directly on it. I wrote a book on civil society groups, voluntary associations, including advocacy groups, and that has something to do with climate advocacy. And I recently co-authored a book on conspiracism in American politics, and that of course brings up the question of uh, the fossil fuel companies and the sort of conspiracy of disinformation that they've been engaged in for years and years. And right now I'm uh, editing a journal issue on climate itself and on how people communicate expert knowledge to uh, voters and to policymakers. Yeah, and that's actually where I would love to start uh, because the focus of this season of the podcast is on climate communications and how people can be better communicators, what is bringing people to communicate or not communicate. Tell us a bit about that work that sounds really interesting about people witnessing climate change. What brought them to communicate around this and what are the sort of lessons learned that they have been finding? Right, well, they, these are specialists in uh, climate work. That doesn't mean that they're all scientists. Some are lawyers doing legal work and litigation of various kinds. There are journalists, there are political activists, uh, there are some social scientists, and they all um, went into their fields without knowing that they were gonna end up in climate work. And so they describe how they got into climate work and then how they moved beyond the professional circles in which they published and wrote to become really witnesses to climate change and to try to talk to the public and to policymakers about the expert knowledge that they have. And so they face all kinds of problems of communication and communicating their specialized knowledge. One, you know, is the question of translation. How do you translate certain kinds of expertise into language that everybody can understand? And that kind of problem is an obvious one. We could talk more about that. But there are other more interesting, I think, ethical questions. So for example, for some of the scientists, uh, there, there's a lot of uncertainty about making predictions about climate. There's no uncertainty about the human causes of climate change, but there's a lot of uncertainty about predictions and timing and so on. But they've learned that if you communicate your uncertainty, people will turn off. People will think they can't deal with uncertainty, they can't deal with risk, they want the answer to the question. And so one of the moral problems is, do you communicate your uncertainty and the unpredictability, un unpredictability of certain kinds of things? And the other kind of moral question that they raise is um, the emotional question. Do you try to arouse fear in people or dread? Is it helpful or is it not helpful? And I think most people agree that you want to, encourage certain kinds of dread or fear, but if you only do that, you won't hold people's attention. You have to suggest positive modes of action and hopefulness. 
And then there are other smaller things that I think, you know, your listeners might find interesting. So for example, um, in a lot of places, uh, talking about climate change or talking about green schemes or policies is a turnoff. And so they've begun to substitute other language, like it's energy saving or it's good for your health. And that's a dilemma too. I mean, do, do you take the, the course that makes what you have to say um, more acceptable? Or do you try to drive home the big problem that we're facing of climate change? Yeah, and I think those are all really interesting issues that people face, whether or not people have named them in their lives necessarily, or that's just something sort of that internally holds people back from communicating. That's something that I've talked to various folks from March for Science about, for instance, where <laughs> there are scientists that very much want to raise the alarm about this issue, but they also feel a duty to sort of be on the sidelines and not necessarily be vocal advocates because it almost undermines the objectivity of scientists well, to do so. Right, well that's, that's a big issue and the, the 16 authors in this journal that I'm editing take the opposite view. Mm -hmm. They acknowledge that there's been a lot of talk about how you compromise your authority as an expert if you go out and advocate for policy. And these are all people who absolutely disagree. It's true that you have to be faithful to your specialized knowledge and that you shouldn't speak beyond the contours of your specialized knowledge. You know, part of, part of um, uh, responsibility is to recognize what you know and what you don't know and to let somebody else talk about something that they know better, to recognize the bounds of your expertise. But these are all people who think that we are in a crisis situation and it's up to people with specialized knowledge and intimate acquaintance with every aspect of climate change to speak out. And how are they coming down on the issue that you had mentioned, for instance, about uncertainty? So that's really something that has plagued action around climate change for a long time, because you're right, you kind of alluded to this, that any amount of uncertainty people can take advantage of. And I see this with climate, and I also see that with our current COVID situation. You know, people don't want to be inconvenienced. They don't necessarily want to make sacrifices. So whether it's climate or COVID, you leave people a little bit of uncertainty so that you can kind of rationalize whatever direction you want to lean in. So if you don't want to partake in a lockdown, then you can exploit in your own mind subconsciously, unconsciously, kind of uh, an uncertainty, a vagueness to what we know and say, well, it's not really that big of a deal. This is an overreaction. Same thing with climate. How have the people that you're talking about kind of resolved that dealing with you don't want to misrepresent the facts. So you don't want to say that there's no uncertainty, but you don't really want to lull people into a sense of complacency either. Right. I think there's some disagreement about that, but there's no disagreement about the fact that you wanted to present, communicate what you know in a spirit of urgency and alarm. Nobody backs off from that. I, that that's the, the best I can say about it. And I, I just wrote a piece comparing climate uh, advocacy and the COVID uh, situation, because I think there really is a difference. That is when you're faced with an immediate uh, threat of disease and even of mortality, of death, then you tend to listen to uh, and want to hear from doctors and epidemiologists and public health people. And they don't have any difficulty getting audiences, right? In fact, people would 
would like uh, the federal government to have them up there on television much more, the CDC and the FDA and so on. Um, whereas climate specialists forever and even still uh, have trouble keeping people's attention on this problem. So they are constantly having to sort of re restate and recommunicate and try to get again on television or in the press or meeting with community groups because um, attention wanders from climate change. And we can talk about that some because I think there is a difference when you're talking about neighbors or communities that have suffered a catastrophe related to climate and those that haven't. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that I've been thinking a lot about comparing COVID to climate. And on the one hand, in the early days of this COVID situation, I was hopeful that maybe this was a kind of map that you could use in terms of people coming together and really tackling what is truly a global issue. On the other hand, it's potentially just one more illustration of how we constantly get distracted and put climate on the back burner because there's always some seemingly more clear and present danger of the economy or in this case COVID or a war or whatever it is that distracts us internationally from the climate issue. I think it's a very complicated interrelationship there. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear more about what you think about, especially tapping into the local. How does that affect things in terms of when things do start to feel more local and more of a clear and present danger? So it's not just this global challenge that seems abstract and intangible, but how have you seen that since that's been a big focus of your work of right. local communities and neighbors? And I know that there's a distinction that you also wanted to make between like community and neighbors. Right. I think of communities as um, local and probably official uh, uh, entities. Uh, they're political. They're often electoral politics. They're the scenes of public life. Whereas neighbors are, we know what neighbors are. They're the people who live nearby. They're people we recognize whether or not we have, you know, intimate interactions with them. They're there's a, neighbors occupy their own sphere. It's not the sphere of work and it's not the sphere of politics and of family and friends. It's its own sphere and it has its own history and it has its own value, moral value and, and political value. But it, I guess the most important thing to say about neighbors in this context is that it's an, it, it, there are sustained social relations that float completely free of institutions and rules and procedures and that when neighbors have to do with one another, even when they have to collaborate with one another about a sewer or whatever it is, um, they improvise. It, most often it's confronting a, a neighbor who's being disagreeable and causing noise or whatever. But, um, <laughs> when, when I was writing this book, it's funny, I would give all kinds of talks to people and people would get extremely agitated in talking about the offenses that their neighbors inflicted on them. It was almost as if they were talking about a divorce. Uh -huh. <laughs> it happened far in the past, they were agitated by it. And I think that neighbors and climate change and communication uh, are different from communities. So I think that neighbors um, do two things. First of all, they can model certain kinds of behavior and encourage it. If you're in an affluent community and your neighbor puts up solar panels, you're gonna find out about solar panels. You might call the company to find out what it would cost and so on and so forth. Or, or if you're in um, one of the many, many zones of sort of what we think of as environmental injustice, 
and you learn that not only does your child have asthma, but everybody in this area has high rates of asthma, then talking to your neighbors about it makes them understand that it's not just an accident that they have asthma. But probably the most important way in which neighbors, as opposed to community figure, is that is during disasters. And I've written a lot about all kinds of disasters in which neighbors literally hold our lives in their hands. And that's truer and truer as we have more and more climate-related disasters, fires and floods, or Hurricane Katrina, uh, or, uh, and so on. Uh, now, not, these disasters in which neighbors play a part are not only uh, physical material disasters. It can be lynching or betrayal of neighbors, uh, the way the neighbors in San Francisco betrayed the Japanese during the time of internment. But climate-related disasters is important. And we know a couple of things about neighbor responses during disasters. And one is that um, first responders are not the first, that it's neighbors who matter most, that they, uh, they uh, offer immediate and concrete aid they um, know who has a pet, right, who, or where an elderly person lives. They have local knowledge. And after a while, the, the assistance that neighbors give in catastrophic situations is supplanted by organized civil society groups and by government. But nonetheless, it's an indicator of the significance of these relations of proximity and of recognition in catastrophic situations. And what happens afterwards to people also depends in part on their neighbors, not just on communities. That is, there are some who stay, there are some who leave and never come back. There's the very interesting legal and political problem of little communities that have lost everything, that want to be moved or relocated if they're in flood zones or whatever, uh, en masse together as communities. And there's very little law or knowledge about this. So uh, neighbors are important for modeling, I think, um, for encouraging, and for uh, real help in emergency situations. Yeah, and so I guess to separate those out, I I'd love to talk about both of those kind of buckets. So one is the modeling and kind of values and influence, if I got that right. Yeah. And then a, a second bucket could be the kind of disaster response, resilience, um, support that comes from neighbors. So on that first one about influence, can you speak a bit more about the different ways that neighbors influence people in ways that maybe we wouldn't think of? And it's it sounds a little subtle in a way where it's like, if your neighbor gets solar panels on the roof, then you think, oh, maybe I should get solar panels on the roof. And there's all of these examples that you hear about in terms of energy efficiency, that one of the best mechanisms to get people to save on energy is to tell them that their neighbors are saving on energy. And then there's almost like a competition mindset that kicks in. Can you right. speak a bit more about those different ways that neighbors influence each other? And obviously that could affect people's views on climate or the different things that they're right. doing to be more sustainable in their own lives or communities? Right, I, well, I think that first of all, um, there is just this modeling issue. And it's not just modeling. It's, people may not even be thinking about energy, right? Or about solar panels or about why their whole family has asthma, right? And once somebody alerts them to the fact that this is a 
problem that other people have. And here's what they've decided to do about it. It takes people out of the realm of, or out of the realm of utter passivity, at least they know something, and you know, prepares them in a sense to take action. Now, that may or may not be true for everybody, but it's certainly an important impetus. And I use this asthma example because I think it's a very important one. I, one of the people writing essays in my book is an uh, African-American public health doctor who uh, set up a climate workshop in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. And he discovered that the asthma rates in certain minority and poor communities were just astronomical, you know, out of, out of and he organized these communities to petition uh, the Hartford City Council to make certain changes of, uh, you know, toxic waste and of uh, preparing for heat and so on and so forth. So, and he, and, and it was precisely because he organized these neighbors in this area that that um, they were quite successful in Hartford in making public policy changes. So it's an example of how you move from neighbors and recognition into then a, a community organizing or civil society groups or advocacy groups or whatever. So it often goes sort of from, from the bottom up. I'd say the most important thing, John, is true whether you're talking about neighbors doing you know, independent things that they can do on their own as homeowners or as renters or as a member of a family and things that you can only do in an organized way. And the, there's a rule of thumb that I proselytize about. Uh -huh. And that is that people do something because someone asked them to. Someone asked them to. And we know that about voting, right? That your neighbors can precipitate you into voting or not into voting, but into voting if someone says to you, hey, I'm going to the poll, do you vote? It, it, that's why they've started using these I voted stickers that you may have seen in some mm -hmm. sort of parts of elections. So it's important that people ask, that you be asked. It's no guarantee, but it's the mechanism that moves people from uh, not even recognizing a problem to recognizing something's happening to thinking that, well, maybe I could go along and, and do this. Um, so I'll, I'll just stop there. Yeah, I, I think that is super interesting. And I think that that's, in a way, it's so obvious. And it's something that I feel like we should have realized because we've all lived whatever number of years on this planet. And we could observe that often our motivations are based on someone just asked us to do it. But it's not something that we even realize. It right. just it's the subtle way that your behavior is shaped that doesn't really sink in for people. Um, so that's really interesting, and I think and, a, and it's a point. And it's, in, it's where the neighbors versus the community piece comes in, because, uh -huh. you know, you're, this is somebody that you may not be very close to, but you recognize one another, you see one another every day at the mailboxes in the lobby, or walking the dog down the street, or whatever, and so, so listeners who want to propel action can, can take these simple steps of asking people. Mm -hmm. And modeling on modeling behavior. Yeah. I, I, should, I should say something uh, on the dark side here. The, the character of, a, of neighbor relations can be damaged by government and by politics. It can be damaged in ways that historians know about. So if you have a despotic regime that has neighbors spying one another, like the East German Stasi, right? Or if people use uh, grievances against a neighbor to report to police and the police take action. 
or as it happens today, if you have such a deep partisan divide that it goes all the way down from the arena of sort of public politics into the workplace and then into neighbor relations. And the, the, the positive dynamic that we were describing of, you know, here I'm doing this, do you want to do that, uh, has limited value, is really deflated when taking an action or not taking an action designates you as a member of a political tribe. Mm -hmm. And on climate, as you know, and as your listeners doubtless know, um, this has become a partisan issue. That wraps up part one of our interview with Nancy Rosenblum. Stay tuned next episode for part two. You can find out more about what you can do to make a positive impact at dojustonething.org. That's dojustonething with the number one. And follow us on Instagram at Earth Day Initiative.